The Guardian. Hello, this is the Business Podcast. I'm Adit Chakraborty. India's economy is booming. A rapidly growing middle class of tech-savvy graduates is competing with the best the West has to offer. An Indian firm is now the biggest employer in UK manufacturing. And Indians are snapping up high-profile British companies and buying into the playground of the rich, Premier League football. This week, the country showcases its major cities in the World Cup of its national sport, cricket. From Delhi in the north to Bangalore in the south, there is a justifiable pride in what Indians have achieved, an expectation of better to come. So how's it happened? What are India's prospects? And how many of its billion-plus population stand to benefit? The story of India's success is often told as a very simple one. After independence from the British Empire in 1947, India's first Prime Minister, Nehru, oversaw command economy of nationalised industry and strict controls on foreign trade. The economy stagnated in the 70s and 80s, culminating in the balance of payments crisis and a visit from the IMF. In 1991, Manmohan Singh, as finance minister, oversaw the beginnings of market liberalisation. And in the space of 20 years, India is beginning to be spoken of as an economic superpower in the making. Singh is now Prime Minister and advised on economic matters by Raghuram Rajan. I think that India has some way to go. I think growth is never straight line. I think India has a very, has strengths, very important strengths you shouldn't discount. Very strong private sector. It has a democracy, which sometimes messy, sometimes ugly, but is a democracy and is functioning. It has a decent press, which will unearth wrongdoing. It has some good institutions. I think a little bit of paranoia, a little bit of diffidence is always very good for a country. It makes you focus on trying to do things better, makes you try to overachieve. It's when you think that you've arrived, that that the road ahead is straight, that's when you let your guard down. And India's far from being in a position to let its guard down. I think one of the difficulties is that the, the narratives about India have tended to be a bit stuck. Patrick French has written several books on modern Indian history. You either have the, the post-colonial poverty narrative or you have the British Raj narrative or the India shining view that everything is, is rosy. But essentially what has happened is that several hundred million people have been taken out of extreme poverty since the economic reforms. But about a quarter of the population have stood still and gone nowhere. So is India a third world country slowly becoming richer or developing country developing first world pockets? Raghuram Rajan. I would say that it's a third world country with a first world enclave, but the third world part is benefiting slowly from the enclave. That is, the goodies from the enclave are are sort of radiating out and helping the third world part improve. So India's produced a bunch of people who look a bit like Americans and are almost as wealthy as Americans and are spending a bit like Americans. And then the rest of the country still remains pretty much recognisably village India. And are you saying that the rest of that country, village India, will slowly turn into America? Well, uh, it, it may not turn into America, but it will certainly be a much more prosperous than it is now. I mean, if you look at an Indian village, Indian villages are towns by most other people's reckoning. You know, you can see the tremendous changes that have taken place there. I mean, right from, you know, people used to ride on bicycles 
if they rode at all. And now many of them are riding on two-wheelers. That's progress. More TVs, more radios, more cell phones around. All that is permeating into the village economy. It helps some of them do business. You've heard about the cell phone and how it helps villagers keep track of prices and where they should take their produce to the market. But I, I, I do think there is a whole lot that can be done that is starting to emerge. So, for example, mobile banking. Many villages, 50% of India's population doesn't have access to a bank account. When you don't have access to a bank account, you keep money around, you lose it, somebody comes and borrows it. I mean, all sorts of things happen which make it difficult to save. If you have a bank account, you can put it in. But walking to a bank is really difficult. I mean, distances are considerable in village India. Mobile banking could make tremendous change, and that's starting to be rolled out. Unique ID. This seems like a trivial change. Having everybody have a unique identity, which uh, is established by biometrics. But once you have a unique ID, then uh, it's much harder for the government official to be corrupt, to claim that you worked on the government program and you got paid for it because, uh, you know, he can't invent fake names anymore. He has to have a real person with a real biometric identification who is stored somewhere there. And when that real person finds he hasn't been paid, well, you've caught the government official out. So corruption can be brought down. Transfers can be made much more easily. Instead of subsidizing kerosene and finding a whole lot of excess use of kerosene by the middle class and others, maybe you can make income transfers to the very poor and say, well, you can use this for kerosene or you can buy flour from the public store. You don't need to go to the what we call in India the ration shop, where the rations are sent by the government, where half the rations are stolen, the the other half is low quality. You have choice. So a lot of changes can be made for those people in uh, what Bharat or, or real India if you can use the technology and the capabilities of those in enclave India. And I think that's happening. Uh, so I wouldn't say the enclave is standing still. Moreover, I think if you look at India, the tremendous amount of effort that's being put by people in the middle class, the huge number of NGOs, attempting to make a difference for the rest of India, I think there's something something interesting there. It's, it's not about a government movement. It's not about socialism. It's about voluntary organizations being set up, trying to make a difference in a big way. All in all, it's a world away from the permit Raj of newly independent post-war India, says Patrick French. Well, one of the things I tried to track was why it seemed such a good idea in the 1940s and 50s and 60s to have a command economy. And what's interesting is the way that very big Indian corporations, things like Tata, which now own Jaguar and British Salt and all sorts of other companies, uh, they thought it was a good idea as well. And so you had these big business houses which also thought, well, you know, if you're going to have industrialization, modernization, a new India, everything has to be organized from the center. But, you know, going to speak to the business people who had to deal with the permit Raj, you see that the whole thing kind of clogged up by about uh, 1960. And, and you had this ironic situation where in the 1970s, per capita GDP in India was growing more slowly than at any point in the previous 150 years. So you had you had political freedom, you had independence, but you did not have economic freedom. That may be true, but what you may have lost as part of that transformation is 
India's sense of its own particular national mission, which Nehru in particular was quite keen on. But I think still quite on. strong. I mean, a lot of the good things that have happened since liberalisation have been based on the infrastructure that people like Nehru built. Uh, you know, just one example would be the IITs, these amazing colleges where, you know, it's so difficult to get in there that if you're a graduate of an IIT, you're employable all over the world. And so what's sometimes seen as globalization is in fact, I think, an internal Indian story. And also, for example, the telecom revolution, 720 million Indians having mobile phones, that comes from East Asia. It doesn't come from the West. Do you really think that Nehru, who created these Indian Institutes of Technology for the super bright upper middle class, middle class Indians to, to send their children to and for them to grow and to create national champion industries, do you really think he'd be very happy with them ending up working for foreign firms even Silicon Valley or in London or just working for their colonial outposts back in India? (laughs) They're they're, they're certainly not all upper middle class or or even middle class. I mean, given the reservation system in Indian education, there are people from pretty much every caste and uh, social background. You know, would, would, would Nehru like it? I don't know. But, you know, what's remarkable is the way that so many Indians who've done well in foreign companies in the last two decades are now back in places like Bangalore, like Tamil Nadu, putting ideas into effect that they may have taken from abroad, but they're, they're, they're trying to make things work in a, in a purely Indian context. As the world's largest democracy with a growth rate of over 6% a year, India can expect to have the third largest economy in the world within two decades. But another superpower is emerging, one that borders India with, for the moment at least, an even larger population and much faster growth. China has a remarkable performance in terms of the numbers of people it uh, lifted above the poverty line within a short span of two decades or two and a half decades. Another success to chalk up for globalisation? Not so far, says the Indian economist Pranab Baden. More than 650 million people were raised above the standard World Bank poverty line of $1 a day in 2005 prices. 650 million is a, never before in history such this, this has happened. So it's unparalleled. But then if you look closely, of these more than 650 million, more than half of that numbers were raised above the poverty line between 1981 and 1987 long before China became really integrated into the global economy. China became part of the WTO, the World Trade Organization, in 2001. Global trade and foreign investment started in a big way, really from the middle 90s onward. But by 87, more than half of the 650 million people were raised. So what's going on? I think a big change that happened is in the agricultural sector, where in any case the poor were concentrated. The agricultural sector, the big reforms took place. Um, One, they moved from the commune system to the household responsibility system. Households had the freedom to cultivate their land. But more important, at least as importantly, everybody got an equal amount of land. So what does it do? You provide a floor to your income. Your income doesn't fall below a certain level because you have a piece of land to fall back upon. This is a big contrast with India. In India, 40 to 50% of the rural households are either landless or almost landless. So that, that floor on poverty is not there. So this is a big success of China. But notice, this is not a success due to globalization. This land reform I'm talking about, both the uh, community household responsibility and this egalitarian distribution of land use rights, very little to do with globalization. 
it is a kind of reform. So, yes, reforms are very important, but not necessarily globalization. Globalization played a positive role later in China because China um, went for these uh, highly labor-intensive industries, which became an export success in garments, in shoes, in toys, in wigs. These employ lots of people, so lots of poor people. So poverty went down in the latter part of this period, uh, I think to some extent because of globalization, but it's not all globalization. In India, the story is even more complicated. In India, the Indian success stories you hear about are not in labor-intensive industries. You hear about software industry, you hear a business processing, you hear about pharmaceuticals, and now you've started hearing about uh, India's doing well in some um, vehicles and car parts. But all of these, particularly pharmaceutical, software, business processing, are skill-intensive. So it doesn't help the very poor people. So poverty decline has not been as dramatic as in China. But it has been significant, and it has been to various reasons over time. Education, roads are improving, agriculture, there was a green revolution. It's now kind of stagnated, but the green revolution in the 70s and the 80s and the early 90s uh, in some parts of the country. So this all this reduced poverty in the, in the agricultural sector, but very little to do with globalization. Well, you might say green revolution has something to do with globalization in the sense green revolution is borrowing an idea, which is about how to improve ills, but not in the sense of green uh, globalization in the sense of foreign trade or foreign investment. Uh, so both countries, uh, market reform did play some role. I think globalization also played some role more in China than in India. But that's not the, on, the, the major part of the story uh, in this big dramatic change in China and significant change in India. So are the Chinese worried about their rapidly mobile neighbours? John Ross is visiting professor in the economics department at Jiao Tong University in Shanghai. I would actually say there was much more, because I go to India relatively frequently, much more in the Indian press, which is about how we're going to try to overtake China, etc. But I would say there's probably 10 or 20 times as much in the Indian press as as China discussing the the question of India. Which in itself is quite telling. Yes, which I think is telling. And also I think it's not the right measure for India. India should be concerned with the fact that, unfortunately, India now has a very large number of poor people. And the most important question confronting the country is how much their living standards develop. It's not the question of whether you can overtake China or not, which I think is not going to happen. But, but, it, but it's not the right measure. If you look at opinion surveys done by Pew International people, China has the most satisfied population in the world. 83% of people think that the country is going in the right direction. That's the type of appropriate uh, measurement, right? Also, frankly, if you're going to say such things a country like India, we're going to become the most rapidly growing economy in the world. I think it's probably better to do it after you've achieved it rather than keep predicting it. Where's India headed? And can it grow in a way that takes more of its people along with it? The answer is complex, according to Pranab Baden. One thing that Indians are, uh, ba- Indians are banking on is uh, the, what they call the demographic dividend. But whether India will succeed in making good will depend on several conditions. And one of them has to do with education. Because it's not enough, enough just to have these young people, if you can't give them good jobs. And they won't get good jobs if they're not well educated. So back to the same education problem. 
So, in fact, you may have problems in your hand. If they're not well-educated, they're not going to get good jobs. They're going to get frustrated. So you'll have political problems on your, on your hands because you have so many young people. The other is, uh, which is related, is that in India, there are lots of regional variations in economic growth. The parts of India which are doing well are the South and the West. But they are aging faster than the rest of India because fertility rates have gone down in the South and the West much faster than the rest of the country. So where are these young people? They will be crowded in these large populous states of North India. And that's where they're not growing very fast. Economic growth hasn't been very, uh, not very spectacular in those, those parts. So there is a discrepancy between where the young people are and where the jobs are. Of course, one can migrate, but it's not that easy. There are cultural, political, physical um, barriers to migration. Raghuram Rajan echoes the point. The first focus would be on nutrition. Uh, I think that's the problem that's going to stay with us long term. Second, education. Education can be done when people are young. As they get older, much harder to do that. And education is not just the school, it's family, it's the attitude towards education, etc. So when you're talking 30 years, the one thing that's going to persist for 30 years is not physical structure, it's human capital. You have to focus on the quality of that human capital. Uh, And that's something that India is not doing enough of. India has some very good graduate institutions, uh, undergraduate institutions, not enough, uh, and not enough that are of world-class quality. Uh, So not just the primary schooling, uh, not just secondary, but even tertiary, uh, all those have to be worked on in a big way. I think if you, the longer you wait on that, the more you have people who are irremediably harmed uh, and cannot be retrained uh, for the India that, uh, that uh, you know, people should be thinking about. But Patrick French spots another virtue in India, flexibility. Its cities appear to be adaptable and its people resilient. Those two virtues, he thinks, will stand India in good stead for the future. You know, I was, I was talking about this when I was in India about a fortnight ago, and I was giving an example of the opposite situation, which is somewhere like Detroit, where the auto industry goes, and the entire city grinds to a halt and nothing happens. And I said, I said to the person I was speaking to, if something, similar in, if something similar happened in India, would everything just stop? And immediately he said, no, well, of course, you'd, 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 you'd find a new business and, and the people would move. And the, the idea of versatility is kind of rooted into the Indian psyche. Last word to Pranabhan. He was born in West Bengal in the 1940s, just before India won independence. What would his younger self make of present-day India? I think compared to my youth, um, there's a lot more confidence in India, among the younger people in India. Uh, in fact, sometimes they're overconfident. We are becoming a superpower, etc. Indian upper middle class is just itching to be a superpower. And I tell them these horrible stories about uh, 45% of children underweight, much worse than sub-Saharan Africa, just to provoke them. You know, all the time when they're this hype about India becoming superpower, etc. So that confidence has certainly grown. And I think ultimately it helps you to some extent, unless you really overdo it. And the other thing is that the private corporate sector in India is much more vigorous today. And as I already mentioned, that they are more confident they can't take on the world. I don't think they were confident when I was young or even later 
they were not confident. Uh, even up to 90, middle 90s, they were not confident they can take on the world. But I think they are now. To some extent, it's also because of globalization, because many of these young entrepreneurs in India, in Bangalore, say, they are returnees from Silicon Valley in California. They've made money there. They know that they can do well anywhere in the world. They choose to do it in Bangalore. Uh, and so, so that, 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 that confidence and the vigor of private corporate sector, something that's a big change in India compared to my days of youth. Pranav Barden there. Thanks to him, to Raghuram Rajan, Patrick French and John Ross. The business podcast will return next week, but I'm off for a well-earned break. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Adit Chakraborty. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.